0: Welcome back, or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, we are talking with Spike Eskin, the VP of Programming for WFAN in New York City and CBS Sports Radio, also the host of a popular basketball podcast called The Rights to Ricky Sanchez. Given the background, you might be wondering, Finn, why are you talking with someone steeped in the worlds of sports like basketball, football, and baseball? Isn't this a trail running podcast? Well, If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that I'm a big believer in exploring adjacent sports, industries, cultures, and communities with the express intent of hopefully bringing back some fresh ideas that we can either consider or even implement in our world to make it even better, even more exciting, and at the very least, better situated to handle growth in the years and decades to come. It's as simple as that. And with that said, and, you know, given the rapid expansion of live streaming opportunities in our sport as well as the increasing size and and frequency and, and sophistication of media outlets in our sport i was excited to chat with spike because of because of his expertise in sports programming and commentary so whether you're an athlete a fan a race director a brand manager or a media operator yourself i think you will have uh, many takeaways from this one. And as always, I would love to continue the conversation and hear some of your thoughts offline. Shoot me a DM at Run Single Track on Instagram. One thing to note before we get started thank you so much to Knack for supporting the show. Knack is the official nutrition partner of Single Track. I finally got to hang with these guys. Shout out William and Louie at TRE last week, and it made me really just like them and their mission even more. The idea behind their products is simple as well the ingestion of a single macronutrient like carbohydrates is not enough for the vast majority of athletes to fuel at ultra distances. After a few hours of effort, you really do need the complete nutrition approach to go farther for longer. There are so many athletes bonking at the 100K and 100 mile distances because they're using products made for shorter efforts that overuse sugar and lack other critical macros. And that's the problem NAC solves. It's sports nutrition made for the ultra distances. So if you're curious, head over to their website, NAC.com, check out what they got, And if you make it to checkout, use code SINGLETRACK15 for 15% off your next order. With that, let's get on to the conversation with Spike. I'll mention it in the pre-recorded intro too, but um, for context, super excited to have you on the show, Spike, because we are at a really interesting moment on the media side in trail running where there's a lot of cool innovations happening. All sorts of elements are becoming more sophisticated. But there's also a lot of world building left to do, and mm-hmm. and that's why I wanted to have you on because you come from a really developed you know major sports talk landscape, and I mean I know the infrastructure is there, the talent is there, the audience is there, and and we have a lot to learn from your experience and your insights. So that's a long-winded way of saying really excited to have you here, excited to have you on the show, and um, thanks for your time.
1: Yeah, of course, I. I got excited when you said it was a trail running podcast because I like I'm so I in my time running was all on street and I never but I was always like jealous of trail runners because I always look so cool or when I would go on a hike or something, I'd be like, Man, I wanna be that guy or whatever. I was just always a little too scared that I would turn my ankle or something. But when you said when you said what the podcast was, um, you know, I'm, I try to do as many of these as I can, but I'm a busy person. But when you said trail running, I'm like, ah, fuck yeah, I'll do that. Absolutely. I don't know if I can curse, but yeah, I was, I was pretty psyched to do it. So, I mean, we're, we're following your latest appearance on Stratechery. So I don't uh,
0: want yeah. to think you're being designated for assignment going to double A podcast. <laughs> no, no,
1: no, no, no. <laughs> I was honored to be on Stratechery. Honestly, I've, I've gotten to know Ben pretty well over the last year and a half. And when he asked me to come on, like, you know, Stratechery, they'll have, Major, you know, tech people, and then he's like, my my sports radio podcast friend want to come on, so that was that was wild. It was pretty cool. I always say uh, him, and when I've been on House of Strauss, is like when I'm on certain podcasts, I'll get tweets about it. When I'm on Stratecker or House of Strauss, I'll get LinkedIn notes like that. That's how th- that's the difference between the the two worlds.
0: I think it's a testament to your versatility. Yeah, <laughs> good talker. I'm a good talker. Um. All right. I've heard you talk about this on at least one other show, but I think it's critical to recycle here because it just sets up the rest of the conversation so well. And the question is, if you were to imagine the ideal sports talk host or personality or contributor, what would the traits be and how would you weigh them?
1: Oh, man. It's funny. I, after I got asked this one question, which was a very interesting question to start off the Media Matters pod, is that the one that it I was? I love it.
0: I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a diehard listener. Yeah. Diehard, it, one of the best questions of all time.
1: And I wasn't ready for it. You know, like I had to talk my way through it and you would have thought that between then and now I would have contemplated all of it, right? So, uh, so how would I weight them? Well, in the end, people have to want to engage with you. Right, you, uh, whether it, we'll get to the other, you know, personality traits, but there has to be something about you that people like, and I hesitate to say like you, uh, because you, people don't always like the sports talk host they enjoy, not in a classic way, but they want to engage with them and they want to spend time with them. So there is a magnetism and star power. It can be defined. There's there's lots of different ways to have it, but that's that's like half of it is is that magnetism and star power and within that there's a confidence right and it's very interesting because most sports talk hosts in a vacuum are not confident people like if you put them most of them in a crowd of people you put them in a crowd they don't some of them they've been doing it long enough or they figure it out but the natural thing i would say mostly they're awkward in front of a crowd of people and then you start to think well Their entire existence is being alone in a room or with one other person, and they can control the conversation. If they don't like what somebody's saying, they can hang up the phone, right? So it is a way of having somebody who has like opinions be confident, right? But so anyway, so there's there's that personality trait. There's this likeability or, or this magnetism, and then you have to be opinionated and opinionated, uh, in a, uh, in an interesting way, um, in a thoughtful way, in a creative way, because a lot of times you're talking about the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. So if you've ever watched the show chopped, I don't know if I've used, if I use this on, on media matters, but, but, Uh, Chopped is this show, for anyone who doesn't know, where they give you a basket of ingredients and you don't know what the basket is. You're a chef or whatever. And you have to make a dish out of this basket of ingredients. So being a sports talk host is like being on Chopped, except they give you the same basket of ingredients every day, but you have to make a different dish. Right. So you're talking about the same team, but you need a different opinion that is still engaging. So opinionated is like the other, if half of it is this magnetism, a quarter of it is being opinionated. And then the other quarter is this combination of fearlessness, like you have to be unafraid of being wrong. Um, now, that isn't say some people take that as you're trying to be wrong just to fuck with people. That's not true. You just have to realize that you don't get paid to be right. You get paid have be, have opinions right so you can't be afraid of being wrong because being af- if you're afraid of being wrong you'll never be right you'll hedge every opinion you'll never get credit for being right if you don't take the risk of being wrong and then you need like like a sense of humor you know you need to be you have some sort of and and within that sense of humor sort of the self-effacing thing so i think that those are like the key those are the key traits in some sort of some sort of combination on that point of fearlessness that you made there
0: um how important is conviction versus the pressure to add something novel or just baseline interesting to the dialogue um in in the sense of like every single opinion that you bring to the debate or the conversation you really could stand behind like you believe versus just throwing any sort of thought experiment out there into the fray to create you know interest or, or intrigue with you know your colleague
1: in the audience. So it's it's really it's so it's less. Here's what I would say. What what my topic that what what I say to a, a lot of sports talk hosts is there's it's very rare that something you're going to talk about you're like sure a hundred percent that you're right right because these the, a lot of them are predictive or you're talking about something that you're not an, a total expert on you're not you're not a football coach and by the way general managers they're wrong all the time too or they wouldn't get fired and they wouldn't lose and they wouldn't miss on draft picks so so the, the sureness sometimes people get caught on how like are you 100% sure well you're not 100% sure of anything i think the key is if you can get to like if you if you're 70% sure it's about acting like you're 100% sure when you're 70% sure. Because when you just act like you're 70% sure, all you're doing is like really cutting your opinion off at the knees. Like I could say, uh, let's just take some random example. Okay. Yeah, yeah, random sports. Team. So I could say, let's say I believe that this, the San Francisco 49ers are the best team in football and I believe they're going to win the Super Bowl. So I could say, come on, I could say, the San Francisco 49ers are gonna win the Super Bowl. And and they're the best team in football. They have the highest rated quarterback, they have a suffocating defense, and they have two like game-changing running backs, they are going to win the Super Bowl. Now, I could say it that way, or I could go, you know, San Francisco 49ers are the best team. And if things break the right way, if if the quarterback doesn't get hurt, and if they don't have to play in Philadelphia, and if the super bowl if they play any but the buddy but the ravens i i feel like they could win the super bowl i'm just like fucking take could out the window take ifs out the window tell me what you think is going to happen right tell me what what your best bet is and just act like say it say it with your with your chest you know and th- i think that that's about it it's not it's not about saying things you don't believe, but it is about hunting around the things that you do believe to find the things that are interesting and can be debated, you know? So if everybody agrees with your opinion, it's going to be a very short show. It's not very interesting, you know? Mm. So
0: framing your position in a way that, if I understand this correctly, takes on more ownership and confidence and, um, creates more conversation I'm just trying to think here, this, this might be redundant, but is it fair to say that there are also ways of presenting an idea or a position that can be more entertaining than other versions like, um, like, like packaging is really important.
1: Yeah. Packaging and, and really, really like I, I tell people, I tell hosts, put it through this, this lens is, is like the baseline is, And this is, it's a little different for national sports talk radio because national sports talk radio, you're not really creating a conversation. You're really just sort of monologuing a lot more, but, but just in general, an interesting opinion has to pass three tests. A, can I state this opinion in a sentence very clearly? B, can I state the opposition's opinion in a sentence very clearly? And C, do those people exist? So do people exist? So, you know, um, and if the answer to all three of those is yes, then you have your way of presenting it, right? Like you have your, now everybody has different styles, you know, um, Colin Cowherd will use like a lot of metaphors. Um, you know, um, Stephen A. Smith will use bluster and personality. Um, uh, Skip Bayless has this like condescending, like pensive tone to him. Like everybody has different styles, and that's all the same. But but I think, and that that is how it's different, right? Like it's it's sort of like dancing in that you can learn what I'm saying are the basic steps, and then the best dancers take the basic steps and add a flair. So when they dance, it looks different than when somebody who just learned in dance class learns. So these these things that I say, it's not a secret. These are the basic things. The the other part of it is who you are and what you bring to it.
0: Going back, you know, you mentioned Stephen A, you mentioned Skip. I think it was referenced in that Media Matters conversation too that like in order for someone like a Skip Bayless or a Stephen A to exist or to have traction, 50% of that audience has to believe what each of them is saying. And it made me wonder in that moment, like in the same way in politics, you have these pre-election day polls to serve as sort of a you know a barometer for electability, and in, in the same way, you know, once you're in office, you can kind of take stock again through data to see where constituents stand on a certain voting issue. I've always wondered how these people like Stephen A. Skip, Michael Felger, Shannon Sharp, Ryan Clark, you know, the like. How do they get a sense of whether or not ahead of time they're they're in alignment with you know, a critical mass of, of listeners and viewers. And I'm curious, you know, how you think about that.
1: That's the, that's where the great ones thrive. Like, is this going to work? You know, is, is now some of it's trial and error. And I think, I think sometimes the one good thing, there's so many bad things about what social media has done to our psyche and debate and all those sorts of things, but you can kind of see, you know, we used to have this podcast. It's not on the internet anymore. We had to we had to take it off, but it was uh, called the Art of the Take, where we would yeah. Uh, uh, so so me and Jack Fritz and Joe Giglio, who were coworkers at a at WIP, a radio station I used to work at, we used to sort of just like break this down about how many people, and we would look at tweets and sort of like have a mathematical formula for the responses to tell whether a take was like perfect or not and but but, I think generally, the longer you do it, the better you get at it. I think you could take somebody you know you mentioned uh you mentioned Fulger, is that you mentioned in Michael Boston Michael yeah. And Maserati. yeah, yeah, so you could you could take them in Boston, and they're probably awesome at it in Boston because they know Bostonians so well, and part of what made me successful in Philly. You know, my dad was a sports talk host in Philly, the first like full-time sports talk host. And I worked in music radio for a long time before I worked in sports radio. And when I got to sports, I realized I had this sort of like, like I wasn't great at it at first being a program director. It took me a few years in sports, but I realized I had this institutional knowledge about the city and about the fans because of what I experienced growing up that allowed me to sort of have this gut that I'm like, hmm. I think they'll react this way. So um, I think it's harder if you're national because you're dealing with a wider swath of people, which is why when people complain that national sports talk hosts only do a select number of topics, it's because you need more people to care. Like you need consensus, which sort of thins out the number of topics that you can really dive into that people have a passionate opinion about, you know?
0: And I have to assume, and again, Correct me if I'm wrong, but at some point, I have to imagine that a Stephen A. and a Skip Bayless transcend their original roles and they actually become like opinion makers. They become taste makers. And what they say in any given episode becomes like, like forms the opinion to some extent
1: in the audience's mind. Uh, for talking. some people. Yeah. For some people, I think, I think you have the, the, the I mentioned that magnetism and I think they're convincing. Like, the, the thing about some of their opinions, and the reason that I use those people is because they are widely known. The, I'm not saying that they're the only people good at it, but they're widely known and they're polarizing, um, it, at least in the opinions. I think the thing that is amazing about them is that the reason people get so mad at, at their opinions when they disagree is because, A, they're presenting in a way that feels convincing and the people who are mad understand that. And B, they know that that is a possibility. Like that's why I always thought Skip's LeBron thing was so effective because I was a LeBron, I'm not anymore, but I was like a LeBron supporter for a while. And the the thing that would get in your head when you love LeBron was that there was a really good chance that the people that didn't like LeBron were right. Right and and there's something about that that is infuriating and also like really scary you know because they pick the thing it's usually the thing that you're most worried about as a fan you know that one question that you have about them So they're just convincing they're you know Stephen a is like incredibly convincing he's a rock star you know maybe the the best that's ever done it you know oh yeah i
0: i try to use his word blasphemous as often as
1: possible in our episodes (laughs) yeah he's awesome
0: um okay one more question and i want to preface this by saying when you look at basketball for example there's all sorts of classifications of players like you know and i'm going to date myself here because i stopped paying true attention three or four years ago but you take someone like Marcus Gasol, He's a stretch big man. JJ Redick, off-screen shooter. Alex Caruso, secondary ball handler. You, you kind of get the idea. You were you were talking about this earlier with um, like the Colin Coward metaphors and, and the Stephen A. blusters. When you evaluate your colleagues in the sports talk space, does something similar from a classification standpoint exist where you could put certain commentators in certain buckets based on their personality and their skill sets, or do you just see this as as reserved towards players and athletes?
1: Uh, I don't think most people do it, but I, I do it for a couple of different ways. Like there's all different ways you can approach things. There's like, we used to, I used to say on the art of the take, like sometimes there's like goalpost moving, like there's a goalpost mover and skip is a goalpost mover, right? It's he's very artful in it. My dad's the same way. He'll be like LeBron James is never going to win a championship. And then he wins one. And you're like, how do you handle it? And how you handle it is like, LeBron James is never going to win two championships, you know, like, like you just move the goalposts a little bit. And so I see the way people argue, and I personally put them in different buckets. And then from a personality trait, because I'm mostly a, a manager at this point, that's really my job. I, there's probably like, in a I would not talk about them because I feel like it would be unfair to host, but there's probably like five to seven different kinds of personalities that I deal with. And it's, they're all mixtures of them. Not, they're not all the same, but I think there is a certain, um, there's a a familiarity to the people that I deal with in this field to where when I meet one and I work with them for a month, I can sort of like, put them into a certain oh he has this much of this in him he reacts well to this this is what motivates him these are his hurdles um, and it all comes from like a, a, a certain personality type
0: okay yeah I want I want to follow up I want to follow up on that um, how important is it to be a stable type of character in your role over the years versus perhaps you know risking a change either in your style and presentation or or your points of view? And I guess for clarity, I'm asking in the context of, you know, these these popular commentators gaining, losing, or
1: maintaining audience over the years. So I, th- I think it's just sort of like a band. And I think you can handle it all sorts of ways, right? I mean, you can have, uh, I, I don't know what band references people are going to get. But like, let's say you take Slayer, a band that is all pretty much exactly the same from the beginning till the end and their fans fucking love them. Um, now, they lost some fans over the years because some people grew out of that phase and didn't want to hear it anymore, but the people that love them know what they're going to expect, Go buy the record, go to the show, because they know exactly what it's going to be. But then there's other bands that grow up over the years and change and their audience maybe changes with them. Some people fall away. Other people join in. Other people age with them as they age, whether that's like Radiohead or a uh, brand new is a favorite band of mine that changed yeah. over the years. And you're like, oh, they just got older and their interests change and they didn't want to make the same thing. And maybe they felt silly. I remember hearing Chuck Klosterman say that he read something that he wrote when he was 18, like as an adult. And he, if he didn't know that he had written it, he wouldn't have recognized it as something that he wrote, you know? So I think there's just different ways to do it. And I think that it's really what makes you most comfortable because the the audience, you, you know, I haven't said this, you have to be, they, 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 they at least have to perceive you as honest. And it's much easier to be perceived as honest if you are honest. To a certain extent, it's very hard to keep up with, keep track of lying all the time. You know, making up your opinions that you don't particularly believe. You'd have to keep a notebook of everything. (laughs) So your baseline has to be that you're honest. So I think if your changes are are like honest as you as a person, I think you can you can grow up and you can change. Stephen A has Stephen A is not the same. You know, he's he's different than he was I think 15 years ago I think there's a self he's more self-effacing than he was mm. he sort of knows that he's showbiz now I didn't know that he was showbiz then I you know I, I, I think people can change
0: switching topics um, you know one thing at least I'm noticing is there are a lot more players after their career or sorry during their career I should say that are that are taking on media roles and sort of blurring the lines of reporting I'm curious what your thoughts are on how this is playing out, especially when it comes to the player versus traditional media personality contributions
1: to the sports dialogue. There's always been former players, and there's really like two kinds of former players, and I've worked with both, and I'm really thankful for the experience of working for both, and I'm specifically thankful for the latter kind because I've got to work with them for a long time. There's some players that, you know, so I'm 47 and i guess you could say that while i have, I have a, i'm probably i'm falling apart a little bit physically that but from a career standpoint i'm in my the prime of my career you know the prime of my career will be 40 to 55 or 60 or something like that players unfortunately you know their prime is over by 30 and a lot of their careers are over by then and that's a traumatic thing to do and i think a lot of them go into media because You can get hired and it seems kind of easy and fun. Um, But so there's that kind of player. But then there's the kind of player who dedicates themselves to being awesome at it, who really falls in love with the medium and falls in love with the work and falls in love with that. Those players are awesome. You know, like those players are really great to work with because. They they're able to have an experience that you didn't and a perspective that you didn't without throwing it in your face all the time. Because most times they're paired with people who did not play. Mm. You can't you can't minimize the experience of the other person because they bring something else, you know? Yeah. But I I think I think players in media is is great. I I don't think it's great while they're playing. That's what I was
0: gonna ask. Like Draymond Green is starting right now, Kim Newton is starting right now while Possibly still returning, you know, mulling a return to the NFL. Um, the Kelsey brothers—they've all built these, you know, media brands in addition to still being
1: active, you know, in it athletically. I just don't. I, I don't I don't begrudge them for doing it. That that to be clear, like I'm not hating on it. I just if I'm Draymond Green, what do, what do I have to gain at this moment for doing this? I could make money, but I'm, and I'm not counting anybody else's money, but he's making $30 million a year, yeah. like whatever he's getting for his podcast, even if he's making a million dollars a year for his podcast, that is a, a very, I'm sorry, this is a podcast, but it no. that's a, a very tiny percentage of what he's making. Yeah. And, and the bad part is, is to make the podcast good, you have to be honest. Otherwise, like there's so many athlete pods and they've come and gone. There's very few of them. Like they start and they go where the, the the player doesn't want to say anything. Well, that gives me no of that's of no value to me whatsoever. But the player really saying something, what happened in that loss? Tell me what happened with this player, your teammate of yours. It seems like there's so much opportunity for right. negative, you know? And so I understand the allure of the attention, and where we have, you know, at the attention and time is—that's the economy that we're in. We're in a an economy of time and attention, and I understand the, I understand the uh, the draw of of wanting to feel that, but I, I, I don't. It doesn't seem productive to me, you know. Um, so that, but then I see like Jeff Teague, who's not in the league anymore and he's telling great, great, honest stories. Yeah. Um, I, but you know, Paul George is interesting because he seems like he's being honest. I don't listen to the podcast all the way through. I just see clips, but, and yeah, I don't know. It just, it seems like it's an, o- an opportunity for bad things to happen, you know? So
0: if I'm hearing correctly, is it is it a
1: real thing to sort of, quote unquote,
0: be too close to the game, too close to your contemporaries to be effective at like the premise of sports talk while you're still an athlete?
1: Well, it's, it's harder. It's much harder because you see it with former players where they, you know, um, one of, if not like. One of the former former Eagle that I worked with, who's still doing afternoon drive in Philadelphia, Ike Reese, and he's you know one of my the favorite people I've ever worked with. But I watched Ike evolve from being on the air right after his career to now being on the air you know 15 years after his career. And what has to happen is those players that you played with and the coaches that you worked with, they have to like leave and go away. So so you're not worried about that, and then. Then, maybe, you know Ike has been a radio host for longer than he was a football player, professional football player. So then you you realize, hey, this is this is my career now." Um, I still think that most of them have a a respect for certain things and a knowledge of certain things that a non-former athlete wouldn't have. But I do think time helps in helping mm-hmm. them evolve to be honest
0: also thanks to rabbit for supporting the show rabbit is the official apparel partner of Single Track. Uh, just this morning i went out for a run along the bonneville shoreline trail it was cold and, and blustery and i was unaffected i actually felt great and you might be wondering why and it's because i was wearing rabbit's new cocoon 2.0 which is an advanced sweatshirt with a built-in turtleneck that pulls up into a secure hood and breathable face mask it's got thumb holes and watch windows to keep your hands warm without a fuss Uh, It's got a water-resistant finish and also a fleecy interior for really comfortable protection. It's the real deal. Um, I really encourage you to go check it out. Uh, Winner's here, so it's time to kind of stock up on on that type of apparel. Uh, If you do head over to their website and you do make a purchase, uh, feel free to use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout when purchasing for 20% off that order. Also, thanks to Oladance. Uh, Oladance makes headphones tailored almost perfectly for mountain ultra trail running and it all starts with battery life most of their lineup comes with at least 19 hours of battery life which Could last the majority or entirety of a single ultra for some of you listeners out there I've put them to test in some of the harshest conditions rain snow heat cold They always hold up head over to oladance.com forward slash st and use code st at checkout for $30 off A pair of their ows2 headphones with that Let's get back to the conversation with Spike. You know, it makes me wonder, where do you think athletes can be the most insightful to the media while they're still playing? Like, like when you're calling them for content or reactions to something on WFAN or the rights to Ricky Sanchez, I'm really curious where you have found they can be the most insightful and forthcoming as opposed to you know, reverting to coach speak or, or how their team has media trained them?
1: Well, it's a little of everything. I think, you know, from a content perspective, they can say one thing at a press conference, they can give us a whole day of content. You know, Joel Embiid was at a conference and he said something to the effect of, I want to win a championship, whether it's in Philadelphia or somewhere else. And that's like all we needed. Like, why would he say somewhere else? Does he want to go somewhere else? Is he unhappy here? Blah 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 blah. And we got like a week out of that on the podcast. Um, I think, you know, I think we sometimes punish athletes for being too honest in press conferences. Hmm. You know, they we ask them to be honest, and if they say, if they say, you know it's after a bad loss and they're like, how are you feeling about this? And they're like, it was tough, but you know, like I'm happy to go home and see my family, <laughs> which is a, a completely fair answer. We would destroy that person. Yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, I found for me, the most meaningful interactions that we have with players from a media perspective is when we have long form interviews with them because we get, give them a chance to relax. We can ask them questions that are not um, that are like not difficult and maybe are fun. And we can sort of pad the hard questions with, not so hard questions on the radio that gets very difficult because Mm -hmm. you you don't have them for more than 10 minutes or something and you know it's a little bit harder so i've i like dealing with um i like from a media perspective i like dealing with athletes in a long form interview um and we're trustworthy like we at least for our podcast we don't put them in positions that are, I think are difficult for them or if we do we do it with a smile and we let them know that like there's an escape hatch if they don't you know if they don't want to answer
0: have there been any conversation prompts or thought starters that have been reliable for you in getting good information or is everything circumstantial
1: I think everything is circumstantial I think I think I like asking players how they feel Felt when they did a hard thing. You know, I remember we had, I like acknowledging that something is hard and asking them about working through it. I remember we had to, to I'm sorry for giving specific examples, but Tobias ha- Tobias Harris is a basketball player in the Sixers. He's very highly played, very highly paid, but maligned because he is, he's a good player, but he is not as good as his salary. And when they traded for another player, this guy, James Harden, Tobias Harris had to change his game to fit around this other guy. And you could tell it was hard for him, but he was doing a good job. And when we had him on, I said, you have changed your game immensely because of some other player. You obviously hold yourself in high regard and you're a highly paid player who has almost made all-star teams. How hard for you? Was that emotionally to say, "Hey, I'm not, I can't do my best thing anymore. I have to do this." Was that hard for you? And I think mm-hmm. acknowledging, acknowledging what he did and giving him credit for it, but also asking him how he feels about something, tends to get a more honest answer or a more insightful answer than a, just asking a purely basketball question. I find it more interesting, you know. And I think they find it a little more thoughtful.
0: You know, the um the, the extent or the level of inquisitiveness there with Tobias Harris, which by the way, I think is beneficial for everyone involved, it it also reminds me about a, a similar avenue of reflection it, you know, because you know, when I look at the the media landscape in, in basketball or football or baseball, there's a level of baseline criticism of performance, maybe even lifestyle, some other factors too that both the media is comfortable with the audience is comfortable with and expects and I would even say most of the athletes tolerate it whereas in our sport of trail running we're still in this moment where you either you know you either kind of focus on the positives or you don't say anything at all yeah Which it's is, like
1: politics you're like <laughs> dealing with like politics
0: you know it's ex- it's very much politics and yeah. Is there anything you can speak to for how the culture evolved in sort of the major sports talk arena where it's become accepted to, you know, really talk and and speak and and evaluate in both a positive and a negative way on teams and athletes? and, And honestly, like
1: going pretty deep into that criticism. It's hard for me to speak to because it's always been that way as long as I've been in it. So I've never known it. I can... I can tell you how confusing it was for me in the reverse when when, yeah, I was, yeah. when I was working in Philadelphia and they that that's what reminded me of it is you talking about it. I was working in Philadelphia and and because of downsizing, they call me up one day and they're like, you're also in charge of this political talk station. And I was like, okay, okay. I, and I was laughing. I was like, I just learned how to do sports. And now you want me to do like r- Republican politics. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll, whatever, you know, whatever, after, you know, some soul searching, I didn't like want to do politics, but okay, okay, I'll figure it out. And it was super interesting to me because I was just like, well, this is probably just like sports talk. It is not just like sports talk. In fact, it's much harder. Because you have to be compelling. But everyone if you say something that is not the the just sort of the general agreed upon narrative or the general they they just want to hear like those things over and over and over again. If you say something that isn't, everybody gets very mad at you. Yeah. In a way that people get mad at you in sports talk, but it's sort of like this arguing at the bar kind of mad right. that is everybody's friends afterwards. It wasn't like that and it's in politics it's it's actually gone the it's only gotten worse in that way and it makes being it makes having real conversations about things very very difficult and it made me think of I was talking to a host at the radio station about like the like the folly of or or how Okay. So let's say we're in a one team town. New York isn't this way, but let's say we're in Philadelphia and everybody's in an Eagles. Salt Lake City, Utah yeah, Jazz. You, everybody's a jazz fan, right? Okay. So everybody's a jazz fan. So how are we going to argue we're all jazz fans? You know. We're, we all, And what I said was, well, what happens is you just don't argue about the stuff you agree on. So you know, how do they have Republican primaries? Like they they're all agreeing. They're they, you know what they do? They take gun control. They throw it out. They take abortion. They throw it out. They take taxes. They throw them out. They're like, all right, we we agree on these things. Let's fight about the other things. And that's sort of how sports works. Um, but uh, but you, what you the way you or my sort of sports box, but, but the way you talk about trail running, it's um, you're you're probably in this place where it's growing from a place that was small at one point and yep. very tight knit. And as it grows, everybody likes having that tight knit sort of feeling where everybody's on the same page and on the same team. But Mm -hmm. as it grows, there's more opinions and more ways (laughs) to look at things and more ways to grow the sport and more ways to grow the brand. But as you hit those points, like the consent, you lose consensus and people lose the thing that they liked originally about the community. And that's really tough.
0: And again, um, in the audience, we'll get this. But to be self-aware and, and self-critical for a second, I think a lot of the outlets in trail running, I would even say endurance sports in general, like Single Track, my company, ha- have grown more in the mold of you know an MSNBC or, or a CNN or a Fox News, and less like you know some of these ESPN-esque affiliates. Which, excuse me, I kind of lament, and and that's part of the reason why I wanted to have you know, you on to pick your brain here today about ways to some extent that we can either balance that out or even change it. Because I think there is, there is, I don't want to say an inauthenticity to it, but there's a really severe limiting of the dialogue long-term that I get worried about in in sort of speaking uh,
1: with an audience in an echo chamber-like way. So what it makes me think about more rather than sports talk in general is our basketball podcast. So we've had the rights, the rights to Ricky Sanchez, a podcast, and the Sixers podcast, and we've, we're in our 11th year. And we started this podcast in 2013 when the team was very bad and trying to be very bad. And the, the reason the, the podcast got popular in the beginning is because when a team is very bad, they don't talk about you on mass media. Like they don't talk about you on sports talk so we were the place that sixers fans went to hear about the sixers and are there were there as many of those people as Eagles fans no of course not but when you have every sixers fan who is still interested that can be quite large but the other thing that happened was they were doing this rebuilding plan I'm'm I'm sorry if this sounds mansplaining for anybody who knows <laughs> how this what happened here but I'm just explaining because it's a running podcast so they were doing this rebuilding plan that was very controversial because it was very extreme. And everybody, we were very much in favor of it. And all of our listeners were too. So we had this powerful group like events with thousands of people. People hated us, but we were bonded together. But then the team got better and the team got good. And I'll never forget It was, there were two players that I felt differently about than most of our listeners did. Ben Simmons and Jimmy Butler, these two Mm. players. And it was the first, I had listeners of our, and I would not back down. I had listeners of our podcast tell me like that they hate me and they disappointed me. They're never listening again, simply because I was giving my opinion on a basketball player. It seemed crazy to me. I put so much time and effort and love into this and it hurt like it really hurt. And I think, but I did not back down because I believed in what I said. And I, I knew that by and large, the most vocal people do not represent always everybody. Most people don't interact with you. Most people just listen. And most people are like reasonable, you know, and, and will listen. And as long as I was being honest, As long as I was being true, as long as I was being good to the people who were there, I was like, we have to be able to withstand me feeling differently about this. And ultimately, like, I'm sure we lost some listeners, but we grew and we evolved and we changed. And now, like, I think the lesson I learned is, um, you know, people, (laughs) there's like no value in being right about something that makes people sad. Mm. So if I don't think the Sixers are going to win the title that year, I don't need to beat them over the head about it. Or if I don't think player X is going to be great, I don't need to beat them over the head about it. I need to, I need to know the time and the place and I need to know when to push and when to lay off and that why people are coming is because they are having fun and they're enjoying themselves and they don't want to hear about what's bad all the time. And I think I went through a stage where I was like, sort of picking out all the bad things. I I've evened out. And I think my partner and I have found that balance. Like he's generally more optimistic. I'm generally more pessimistic. If I feel like he's being too pessimistic, I'll like sometimes like not actively, but I think just end up thinking the other way because I think he's being too far the other way. And I, I think you work your way through it. But generally, I think if your intentions are good and you're honest, I think you that that's the part that I was talking about being curt like the courage of of bad feedback and the um like the no fear of being wrong in that as long as you're saying what you believe like it's the only way that it's only the only way that the I think the community evolve will evolve is and grow is if you accept people who have who think differently.
0: Um maybe this is more applicable to the rights of Ricky Sanchez, but in that role as a host on a niche, you know, Philadelphia 76ers podcast. Do you feel like as a media person there, you act as a as a check on the players and, and the coaches and the management or in any way, shape or form, do you feel incentivized to have good relationships with them and therefore maybe, I mean, I guess beholden is the word to any of, any of the people in the organization. Like, I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is how independent do you feel in that role
1: as a podcast host in that scenario? So we... We have grown to a place where we are probably, from a 76ers standpoint, the most influential media organization that covers the Sixers, which is hilarious because we're just two idiots. Like, we have writers and stuff and a producer. I, I love all of them. But like, essentially, for the as far as the team is concerned, it's like these two fucking idiots that all they do is they watch the games and they act like they know everything. So they do need to engage with us. and Or they don't need to. But they do. And, um, you know, Daryl Morey, who is the general manager of the team, we have a good relationship with, has been on the podcast several times. I think I owe it to them to, when they have a problem with something that I say, answer the call, tell them how I feel, hear them out. Mm. I am not beholden to any, I do not care. About the information that they give me uh, my my commerce is not in information it is an opinion it's how I feel we got here based on how I feel so you know there have been coaches general managers agents who have convinced me of something but I don't I'm not trading information and I say this with all due respect to Daryl if if it meant that we had to say if I had to convey what Daryl thought as my belief I'd rather just not talk to Daryl yeah. it, like it's more meaningful for my audience to have less information and, and won't be more honest but I give I give them credit because as this has evolved we went through a maybe a, a hard period maybe five or six years ago but as it's evolved they understand that like they I, I think they they pay attention they understand the value of it they're good partner, like when we do a road trip somewhere to a, a, in a way they'll make sure that a player comes over and says hello. And I don't, again, I don't owe them anything for that. They're getting something good out of it as well. They're getting good PR out of it. The, the fans love them, but I do res, I I can have a respect and a, um, a mutual like sort of appreciation for what they do. Um, but I don't think it can ever sway what I think no piece of information is, is worth that.
0: I like how you said there that you know a lot of the growth of the podcast can be attributed to the authenticity of your opinions. And I guess this is like a, a pretty fundamental question. But what do you see as like the overarching goal or, or purpose or, or value of sports talk radio and podcasts? Like to begin with, like when when you set out to do this, like what do you see as 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 sort of like the reason why it should exist, the reason why it should be there in the marketplace? How it works in relation to the games, the
1: athletes, the operators, the fans. It is fun. You know, it is a sports without debate. I think people people will say sometimes, um, you guys, whether it's fan, WFN, or the podcast or IP, you don't break down the, the games enough. Like, there's not enough like real sports talk, and I'll just be like, man, that is. There's plenty of places to get it, and it is fucking boring. Like, people, when they're talking about sports with their friends, they don't sit down and break down plays. They argue who is better. You know, they argue if it was the right move or the wrong move. They argue if I would have traded for that guy or not traded for that guy. Like, that's what they do. And I think. I I just I enjoy the connection, and I also think audio is very special in that way. Which I'm I think I probably said on another podcast you listen to, but audio is very personal in a way that video is not. In that people listen largely alone and um, in their free time, because it's when they're driving or they're walking their dog or they're running or they're cleaning the house. And just think of that personal connection. Like I am talking to this person right now and they have their headphones on and they're walking their dog. And I, it's almost like they're on a phone conversation and it's, I, I find it to be, um, uh, what's the word? Like I love it. Like I, I love that personal relationship with people. That that audio can give you, and only audio can give you. And I think, I just think that we make it more fun. I think the the biggest, the biggest insult I ever get on the rights, Ricky Sanchez. The, here's the biggest insult and the biggest compliment. The biggest insult is always, you just said that to for clicks, or you said that to make me mad or whatever. And like I never say that for like you can ha- think I'm a fucking, you can think I'm an idiot. I would rather you think I'm wrong and stupid than lying. Um, That's the thing that I hate the most. The thing I like the most is you guys are the only reason I'm still paying attention to the team. Like, you know, thank you for being there over the last eight years, you know, or the last 10 years. You know, we, we have listeners now who have started listening when they were in middle school and have now graduated college or started in high school and are now married with kids. And we've been with them that whole time. And we've been like a soundtrack to it and we've made it more fun and made it more interesting. And uh, I I think that is the point. I think, you know, during COVID, uh, I was running the radio station Philadelphia and, you know, there were no sports for four months or five months or whatever it was. And it was so rewarding, you know, <laughs> to engage with people where they were when they needed us the most and sort of like come together as this like group of superheroes, almost like sports talk X-Men that still came to work. We were essential workers. We went to work and (laughs) there were no games, but we talked about it just as passionately as if they were coming back tomorrow and we never took a day off and we never rested. And it was so rewarding. And uh, I think like such great community can come from, from just talking about sports. That's just like this common bond that, um, that ends up, that ends up like, going past like age and race and gender and like you go to an Eagles game or a parking lot and is women and men and black and Asian and Latino and white and old and young and like everybody is there for this one common thing it's beautiful in a way it it, to your point
0: earlier it's Interesting how important the host can be because of the audio format and to some extent video too. Like I, I'm a huge again, I'm sorry, I'm a huge Celtics fan. I'm from the Boston area originally. No, no, that's all right. And uh grew up, you know, glued to Tommy Heinsohn and yeah. Mike Gorman for Celtics broadcast. And when Tommy passed, I couldn't have imagined continuing on in the same way. But luckily Brian Scalabrini, in my opinion, filled his shoes and he's super entertaining and, yeah. and quirky in his own ways. And so I don't know. It, a lot of this can be led by the personalities in the media, which is which is interesting to think
1: about. Yeah, um, Scal's great, by the way. I've done a couple, but he used to work for a oh, company. I've done a couple of podcasts. I with love Scal. He's Fun. Yeah,
0: I love that he still plays like one on one with guys too who think that they can beat him because he was just like a washed up player. Have you seen those videos? Yep.
1: <laughs> and and you know what's great about him? He does uh, the thing I was talking about earlier. I remember he had me on. He was doing an NBA podcast for us. He had me on to talk about the Sixers, and he like really disagreed with me about this one player, and. But he was arguing with me, like a normal person would argue with me. He was not. He could have pulled rank, right? Because he was an NBA player. Did you even play? Right. He could. He could have said that, and but he never did. He just. He just. Argue, and I ended up being right. But the. the but in. The, but in the end, in the end, he. He just engaged. Like he met me where I was and engaged with me where I was. I think he's really entertaining. I like scale. Um. Okay. When you, I guess I'm wondering two things.
0: One, do you think that sports talk in general, like in the same way, like Daryl Morey is obsessed with advanced stats, are we seeing like a Daryl Morey influence in sports talk where it's getting more sophisticated and we're talking more about playbooks and schemes and, and breaking down films, or are you seeing more like a reversion to simplicity and and where do you see the preference there among both yourselves
1: and and in the audience? Well, I think the, the good thing is, is that there's opportunity for people to consume anything they want. Like it's sort of the challenge, and that you can find. Sometimes I'll hear people saying, like they'll they'll be watching um, uh, the Inside the NBA, which is the is that the, the TNT show with yeah, Charles Barkley, Charles and Shark. Yeah. yeah, Charles and Shark and Kenny Smith, and they're not they're not breaking down anything. There's no there's no numbers. There's no. It's just like that guy sucks. That guy's a quitter, that guy's awesome, whatever. And people complain. They're like, whoa, you know, the conversation around the NBA needs to be more nuanced. And it's like, I don't want more nuanced. If I wanted more nuanced, I could go and read Zach Lowe or read Kevin O'Connor or there's there or watch NBA TV or listen to Nate Duncan. There's so many places I can go that if I want sort of more deep dive into exactly what's happening and why it's happening, I can listen to that. But I can also listen to guys just watching somebody and go, that guy does not have it. You know? So I I actually think like many things in our world is actually just becoming it's becoming more extreme. I think there are I think people really like like Kendrick Perkins. Like people like love that guy he's an nba analyst he's a former player and he's just loud you know but but i always feel like he's being honest and i love him and i know he's gonna have a long career um uh jj reddick i can't stand i think he's How very no, uh, for a lot of reasons uh but he but he clearly Old man in the
0: three you're not a fan
1: <laughs> so i i generally think all he's doing is he's reading Twitter and spitting it back out at people and yeah. they like being told that they're smart. And, but, 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 but he is doing it in a different way, you know, in a way that, um, like if you like that you can, and I give him credit, he works very hard at it and and all of those things. So I just think, I don't think that there's a more natural proclivity to one or the other. I guess what I do think though, is that by the time you become, an adult with a mortgage and maybe kids and a job like you don't really have time to dive deep into what set the Sixers ran, mm-hmm. you know, in the middle of the second quarter and why it's interesting. You know, I, I think that for us, for rights Ricky Sanchez, we have three different writers you know, not, they don't write for the podcast, but they write for the website and they have very, very different perspectives. One of them is very scouty and will break down plays. One of them is very emotional. Um, so we have a little bit for everybody. So,
0: so like in your case, when you're on the rights to Ricky Sanchez, are you pretty intuitive about what you talk about and you, and you trust that sort of the audience will be entertained and they'll, they'll be able to follow with you and buy in all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Now Mike and Mike and my co-host and I are very different. Like I am certainly more declarative and less, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't want to talk about basketball in, like a, in, in an insanely deep, like complicated way. If he wants to do it, that's fine. I'll, I'll allow him to do that. But I think one of the things that has benefited us is because we've always just been independent and it's just been us in terms of like direction and vibe is that our audience, I've always been true, whether it's the merch or the things that we're talking about or whatever. I've never done anything because I think the audience will like it. I do it because I think it's good. So if I so what we've done is we have built this audience that is based on my instinct. Like the only reason they're still there is because is is be so so I know what the answer is. I know what t-shirt will sell. I know what topic will be funny, because they there There are people that just think like I think, you know in 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 a kind of way. Like I brought up this idea the other day. I was thinking of sitting at home, and I just started laughing to myself, and like this question popped up into my mind. and the question was, would you rather be able to dunk with ease or play sick guitar solos on demand? And I, like it made me laugh. So I I brought I was like this is going to be funny. So I just brought it up on the podcast. <laughs> and Mike is like, "Do you not know me?" I'm like, "What w- which one?" And he's like, "Dunk." And I'm like, eh, I take sick guitar solos." And our yeah. producer said sick guitar solos. And the amount of debate in our email on our voicemail line on Twitter and it's all 50-50. And I'm like, yeah. "Um, but it was just one of those things that like I, I thought of it and I'm like, I think this is funny. So like, I know my audience well enough to know that they will also think this is funny
0: too. Okay. One last question in this section, cause you just brought it up. I'm fascinated by this. Ta- uh, I want to talk about the extent to which you involve your audience in your content, maybe through like the voicemail line, mm-hmm. through social media, call-ins, how, how critical is this to, you know, the products you oversee at WFAN,
1: the podcast. And have you had any, like, new ideas in this area? Well, I think it's really critical. Um, It's funny. Mike and I sort of, like, disagree. I don't think Mike likes the voicemail line or the emails. But I, I just, first of all, I think the interaction is fun. And I think people enjoy the sound of interaction and the, at least the appearance of interaction. But the other thing is, like, I don't have enough ideas. Like, we've... Many of our our t-shirts or our show topics have come from one of our old debates. It came from a listener, and again, I read it, and he said, "Who would win in a, f- at a battle, one tank or a billion babies?" And I was like, <laughs> "I was like, wow, that's crazy," because <laughs> when when you start thinking about how many babies a billion is, it would take a long time, right? <laughs> so, um, so, but we would have never that lasted like weeks. And I could still, you could still bring up tank versus a billion babies to many of our listeners and they would know, but that came from, um, that came from the audience for, for WFAN. I think it's really, really critical, especially because you're talking about the same thing all day. So the more opinions you can get in there to sort of reignite your opinion becomes more interesting. Uh, but sometimes it just takes someone framing the same topic in a different way to, to reignite it.
0: I'm looking at a a whole list of of questions I want to ask you, but I want to be respectful of your time too. Um, Maybe we can talk sort of about sort of your personal growth and how you get better at your craft to kind of close up. Okay. Um, I guess the first thing I'm curious about is like when I think of sports talk, especially like the, the Monday through Friday type like sports talk radio, it's Mm -hmm. such a daily grind. I have to imagine there's like a, like a clock punching type nature to it. Yeah. And, I've always been curious, how do you stay on top of the news? How do you stay on top of what's relevant to discuss? So like, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about like how you curate the information in your life that ends up making it to like the discourse for any given day.
1: The, the job is the sport, the job of a sports talk host, a, a local every day, three or four hour day sports talk host is much harder than anybody thinks it is to do well. It is yeah um, it is four hours on the air it is let's say an hour or two of like specific prep time, but it is the rest of your life being aware or actively watching what is going on at all times and you don't have to watch every inning or every minute of every game because you're not going to discuss all of it like there, there's some you can miss it's like you can be a human but it never stops, and I I, I go back to um, you know Jack uh, Jack Fritz, who I hosted the I, I always remember when I did this to Jack, who I hosted Art of the Take with, and is now the afternoon show producer in Philly and uh, a host. And when he started, he was our night producer, and he would run, he would produce some of the Phillies games or whatever, and I would just text him in the middle of his work shift at like 8.30, and I'd be like, what's your take right now? And he thought I was kidding, and I was like, I wasn't kidding, and I would keep doing it, what's your take, what's your take, what's your take? And uh, I think to answer your question is you are always curating, and you are putting everything through the lens of what do I think about this? Not what happened, but what do I think about what happened? and you have to train yourself to watch and cons- you to watch sports and consume sports and put literally everything you hear through the filter of what do i think and that is exhausting and if you if you don't really love it it can ruin sports for you yeah. because your the, the the purity and the joy of what sports are can you can be defeated you know, by this because of the, just the pure quantity of it. Uh, so you have to love, like we call it the art of the take, but you have to love that. Like you, you have to love almost the opinion part of it in an equal way that you love the sport. You have to be challenged by it in the same way. Um, the same way that a musician to be successful has to love songwriting as much as they love playing you know, and it has to love because without writing the right songs, you'd be the greatest player in the world. It's not going to matter, right? You can do sick guitar solos on demand. You're not going to, you're not going to make any money doing it if you can't write a good song. So, uh, so it's a little bit like that. It is a, an incredible grind and the curation just becomes, I think almost like, uh, almost like chat GPT or artificial intelligence gets smarter. The more you feed it and figures it out, like, That's just doing what a human does like a lot, a lot faster. I think you as a a sports talk host, as you're putting everything through that filter, you also start to go, okay, I've put it through the filter. This is what I think. Is this interesting? Is this something necessary? Yes or no. If it is, hold on to it. If it's not, let it go. You've you've been at this a, a
0: pretty good while now. Has your filter or your lens through which you evaluate sports changed over the years or has it remained fairly steady?
1: It, it's changed. It changes every day. I've evolved every day. I, I learn more things every. I remind people all the time. I like it's so funny. Like I'm so well thought of as a sports radio program director, and I'm still learning how to do it. Um, even coming to New York was like s- sort of a like screwed with my head because I thought I knew how to do this, and then you get to New York and. There's two different baseball teams with fan bases that are completely different, two different football teams with fan bases that are completely different, three different hockey teams, and two different basketball teams. And Whereas in a one-team town like Boston or Philadelphia, it's a lot easier to Easy is the wrong word, but it's like maybe a lot more simple to figure out what do I talk about today, what is interesting to everybody, what is compelling. Then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, well, if I talk about the Yankees (laughs) We're like, what do I do with the Met fans and how do I balance that? And so I'm, I'm learning all the time. I think my filter has changed. My delivery has changed. How I think it works has changed. That thing about the three the three rules about, like, you know, say your opinion in a sentence, the opposite opinion in a sentence, do those people exist? That, that has only come to me within the last year. And I've been doing this for more than a decade. So um, always changes every single day.
0: Have you learned anything from any media personalities outside sports, people like, you know, Bill Maher or Howard Stern, about how to do your craft, how to approach it?
1: And if so, what are they? What have they been? Uh, Well, I mean, without... So I'm a Howard Stern person, Um, I think. I'm 47. It would be really tough to find a 47-year-old man who's in radio who wasn't a Howard Stern person. Um, What Howard taught... What I learned from Howard was... First of all, that show was impeccably prepared, but it did not sound like it was. It sounded like everything was off the cuff, but they worked very hard on whatever they did. There was nothing that wasn't purposeful, and there was no bit that didn't have a beginning, middle, and an end. Incredibly important. It was also an incredible example of community, where the the best thing I can say about Howard Stern is you would turn it on in its heyday, and- Everybody would be like laughing or arguing over something. You wouldn't have any idea what they were talking about, but instead of being turned off by the fact that you didn't know what they were talking about, you wanted to know. Like you wanted to stick around and find out, you wanted to be part of the club. And there was a even even though it was the most popular radio show in the history of the world, it was there was a community around it. You know, you had to know who every character was. You had to know what every sound effect meant. You had to know all of the roles of the people on the show. And that was that was incredibly important. And I, I think, I don't know if I mentioned honesty. So hard work, um, community, and he was always honest, or at least seemed like he was honest. Um, I think whether podcasters today admit it or not, Bill Simmons was a massively important person. In, Huge. You know, massively important. You you just listen to the way that people talk on podcasts. And the same way that morning show hosts talk like Howard Stern, even though they're not doing it consciously, the delivery in a podcast and the way we talk about sports and the way that he normalized being a big personality who was a f- also a fan, specific fan of teams. You know, I remember... um uh, what's now? I can die. The the book about the Red Sox winning the World Series. Um, I can die happy. Whatever it was. Um, I would like. I'm not a Red Sox fan. I hate the Red Sox. But uh, but it was such a like a really good sort of emotional book. Um, so I learned about a lot about podcasting from Bill. And then I think like there's a lot of you know media personalities today for one reason or another that I like. <laughs> this will make. Me- I hesitate to say this. When Tucker Carlson was on Fox, I was always so interested in how he built arguments because it was sort of like Colin Cowherd in that he did this thing. I was always be very interested to in how he do it in that they would trick is the wrong word, but they would get you to agree with their main premise by <laughs> by building the argument through of premises that they present to you as things that you already agree on, that you agree as true. And and he does this thing. And I remember when I noticed that he did it, and it was when I was doing the the other the other radio station. I was like, oh, like that is why he is so convincing, because you've said something that I don't know to be true. By the way, this is how YouTube videos of flat earth and conspiracy theories get you because they start rolling out facts that, that you don't know aren't true and they say it really convincingly, so you just assume that they are. And I always thought he was so interesting in a Colin Cowherd sort of way um, when he did that. You're very sure of himself, very convincing, uh, very very uh, immaculate almost in how he would build an argument.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, regardless of the source, I think I think deconstructing this stuff and, and learning how to build arguments is is worthwhile. And uh, yeah, cool story. But I want to come back to Bill Simmons for a second, because one thing I appreciate about Bill that I've tried to copy in my own podcast is uh, this idea of like, taking an, an unidentified phenomenon out there in the trail running space and putting a name to it in the same way that you know, he's he's trotted out stuff like the Ewing theory. And I don't know if you've done this at all on, on the rights to Ricky Sanchez, but I think it becomes this, you know, ongoing inside joke and you sort of cater to the hardcore fans of the audience and it becomes a fun thing to repeatedly reference with a co-host. And, uh, yeah, we, do, we just enjoy it. So just wanted to point that out as well.
1: Yep. Yeah, I mean, we have a bunch of, like, sort of catchphrasy things that if they, people will write into us all the time. What does it mean when you say this? And we don't tell them listen to the old podcast, go find it. You know, even the name of the podcast, people are obviously are oftentimes like confused by. Yes. I think, I think Bill was good at that. Bill was also good at he would just put his friends on because he had good rapport with them and the rapport made it sound like you were listening to friends hanging out rather than talking heads, doing a radio show, you know, cousin Sal yeah cousin sal you know guest alliance was classic you know even uh house and uh jacko uh like they were all really really key in that in the beginning of that podcast it's amazing too how much uh he sort of raised talent
0: as well and then helped people kind of like springboard from there into you know careers and other areas of media i found that fascinating yeah
1: yeah for sure
0: good talent evaluator you know yeah maybe um Maybe two more questions for you before we close up. I think the first one, and to preface it, I, I came across an article that I read, it must've been five years ago, but it, it uh, came back up on a, on a recent podcast I found. But the, the title of the article was, Michael Jordan has not left the building. And it was written by a guy named Wright Thompson at ESPN. And it, l- it looked at Michael Jordan at age 50, and it did sort of a retrospective on how he felt about his career, and then did a little bit of, you know, Wondering and and, and philosophy around what that what the second act of his life was going to be and The way Wright wrote it in sort of a timeless evergreen way had a huge impact on me and It kind of made me rethink a lot of the ways that I want to do content But then it made me wonder too as I was preparing for this interview in your case What have been some of the most influential pieces of content that have informed
1: how you go about this? well, I mean I said Stern, but you're looking for like one uh,
0: one thing that it happened. could be anything. Yeah, it could be like uh, a pivotal moment where you consumed it and you're like, oh wow, that that left an impression. I'm going to change things as a result.
1: I wish you know. I think this is a probably more of a general answer than you uh, than you wanted, but Chuck Klosterman is my favorite writer, and I remember when when it hit me why I liked him so much and I was reading one of the books cause I have trouble reading. I have trouble focusing when I read. It's funny. I can't really read fiction, but I can read his fiction because I can hear his, like I hear his voice, you know, like the way that he writes. But the reason that I liked Chuck, I realized one day was Chuck writes about things the way that I would write about them if I was a good writer. You know, if I could write like Chuck, I would say those exact Mm. things. You know, I don't always agree, but that's how I would say it. And I think to myself, when we're doing these things, when we're doing, when our hosts are doing things or I'm doing things, there's somebody somewhere, um, probably a lot of people who are thinking the same thing about us, you know, who are saying like, we are, the voice and we are we are finally saying i'm finally saying why ben simmons sucks the way that 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 they always wanted to say and i think that carries like a lot of responsibility but it also puts it in the proper context of why of why a lot of people are listening because that's why i like chuck klosterman so i think that the people who are listening to me and i I hope this doesn't come across egotistically but i think on some level they probably did did he just publish a new book sort of about the 90s he goes back and is, oh, is it's so good? good? Okay, it's I'm gonna. Great. I, I, yeah, I, I actually
0: have it on my bookshelf. I haven't read it yet, but um, you reminded me. So,
1: how old are you? If you don't mind me I'm asking, thirty-two. Okay, so you didn't, you didn't really experience the '90s in a meaningful way. So he, I remember, I remember Drew Bledsoe. We'll,
0: okay, that's when I became a patriot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and, and Terry Glenn well, and Ben Coates. So we will read it in different ways. You will read it. I think in there will be discovery. I was reading it saying, I can't believe it was like that, but it was like that. You know, there's this one thing in the book, and I won't ruin the rest of the yeah. book for you, but there's this one thing in the book that is so interesting. He is talking about the election between maybe it was Bush and, and like Roth Perot, maybe, or, maybe was, or
0: was it early nineties or late
1: nineties? Yeah, well, there would he also talks about the Pearl election, which was Clinton yeah. and Bush. But I forget which election he was talking about. It could go with both of them separate from Perot. And he said, the major defining characteristic of the two politicians in this presidential race that basically everybody agreed on is that they were basically the same, mm. is that we can't tell them apart. The Republican candidate for president and the Democrat president. Fast forward to 2024. 2024. That seems, and he is right. People were like, ah, what's the difference? You yeah. know, like so much so that we're like, we're talking about like, no new taxes. You know, it seems such a, it's such an important issue, but it seems so like passing down. Now. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, and it just, it puts into perspective how different just 30 years ago was, you know, because it, it is, he he basically defines the end of the 90s basically as like the beginning of the internet the internet like killed the nineties the way that grunge held, killed Kara yeah, hairbands yeah. or, or whatever. It's, it's a very, very interesting book. I, I, I like everything he writes, but, um, but the nineties is a really good book. I'm going to go read it now. Um, yeah, last, last question
0: before we close up and this is probably a selfish question cause you know, <clears throat> I hope to benefit from this, but one of the things that I lament about podcasting is like, I don't have a coach, you know, there, there's nobody like telling me on a day to day basis how to get better. Not much feedback from the audience. Uh, you know, I actually heard Ben Thompson talk about this, no real iteration cycle built into it. Couldn't agree more in your experience. You've been at this for a while. How do you get better at podcasting? Like, what do you, what do you focus on? What are your priorities getting better?
1: Well, the first thing is you are right. And it is a major problem. And I don't think it will ever get fixed. Um, like, you know, for I'm saying this, I'm guessing for how good Bill is at identifying talent. I doubt Simmons. I doubt he is sitting down with the host of the podcast and saying, Hey, this was good. Maybe. And I'm not saying to um, to belabor yeah, yeah. the bad things. but but if you if you don't if you don't adjust on the fly, you can, go the, you can go further and further and further and further and further wrong down the, the, the wrong direction, and in a positive way, you may do something that is awesome, and unless somebody indicates to you that it's awesome, you never know that you should do it again. It's very tough. I think the idea of talent coaching is, for some reason, uh, it's important in my, my company, Odyssey. We, we take it seriously, but I think like by and large, there's so many creators that just do it on their own that we've lost the the thing that like somebody might be able to help you you know do that. So that's really really hard. I think as far as what what the feedback I take to get better is I just look for consistent themes in audience reaction. Now it's hard unless you get audience reaction. We're lucky we have a big audience. If a lot of people are telling me this is good or this is not good consistently over a longer period of time, I should mm-hmm. listen. I think the other thing that you could do is you can send your podcast to people who do good podcasts and just ask them for their honest feedback. Well, Spike, I, I can't thank you enough for
0: your time. I know there's a lot
1: of stuff we we left off the
0: table around like the mechanics of a sports talk, the business side of things, um, but you are much appreciated. I think there are going to be a lot of people listening to this that, that will get a lot out of it. It'll you know get some thoughts stirring. I know you never probably expected to wade into the world of trail running media anytime soon, but, but here we are. Uh, and yeah, I feel like a broken record, but, but really, really, really appreciate your time. Thanks for everything you do. Before we go, thank you so much to Kodiak Cakes for supporting the show kodiak was the og believer and i think the first ever sponsor of single track it's been going on for two years now they've been a great partner and they also make great products too you've heard me rave about the pancake mix but it doesn't stop there i'm a big fan of their oatmeal power cups and granola bars as well if you're curious to try it all out head over to their website check out what they got Including the recipe section for creativity and grab some goods. Kodiak also has a special discount for single track listeners where you can use code SINGLETRACK15 at checkout for 15% off your next order.